The next hour will inform you on how cybersecurity is one of the most significant threats to our national security, as well as the battle that cybersecurity experts are undergoing every day on your behalf to protect you, your families, and your data. Welcome to Task Force 7 Radio with your host, the president and CEO of Task Force 7 Radio and Task Force 7 Technologies, George Reedus. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 115 of Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm your host, George Reedus, along with my co-host, the chief information security officer of Siena, Andy Benello. I emphasize that all opinions expressed in the show are my own. I'm not my president of past employers. I will never disclose any sensitive intelligence that I've been privileged to a result of my current employment, and I will never knowingly disclose any classified information related to any security clearances I presently hold or have held in the past with the United States government, and nothing I say during this show should be construed as legal or financial advice. Before I get started, I remind our listeners, you can go online at the Cybersecurity Hub and read recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at their very cool website, www.cshub.com. The Cybersecurity Hub is an online news source for global cybersecurity professionals and business leaders who leverage technology and services to secure their networks. The media professionals at the Cybersecurity Hub are dedicated to providing the latest interesting news, thought leadership, and analysis in the cybersecurity space. So again, to check out a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news, go to the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. So happy new year, everyone, and welcome to episode number 115 of Task Force 7 Radio. I think we're closing out the last couple days here of 2019 real strong, and I've been reflecting back on what a great year it's been for Task Force 7 and Task Force 7 Radio. I, I've really been blessed with meeting and speaking with so many talented people, so many wonderful people have come on this show. Um, I just feel blessed that they return my phone call. <laughs> I mean, they just, you know, and, and they come on the show and just be so gracious. And I'm just very, very thankful. And I don't take any of this for granted at all. And uh, I want to thank all the guests that have appeared and all the people that have listened to the show. Thank you. I got a wonderful audience. I got a very loyal audience. And uh, you've been great. And you've really made the show what it is today. So thanks so much. I just think that the conversations that we've had, and quite frankly, the lives that we've touched uh, uh, over the last year has been an amazing experience for me. Um, when I look back on, on how the show all started and then the idea of Task Force 7 and you know, how it's it evolved and how we've pivoted and, and changed, and, and it's just been a lot of fun. Um, and I just feel not only grateful for the opportunity and experiences that I've had over the last 115 episodes, but... I'm just so more excited about the future of Task Force 7 and the great things that are upon us. So super stoked about 2020, super stoked about 2020 um, and what's to come. So I'm all jacked up. It's going to be a great week. Uh, great show with my co-host last week and repeat guest Andy Benillo. Um, everybody, anybody who listens to the show knows Andy. He co-hosts the show often with me and, uh, and we'll be doing so tonight. And many people in the cybersecurity profession aspire to be the chief information security executive of their organization someday. So it was a pleasure to listen to Andy's journey to eventually becoming the CISO of Siena. And having this type of experience to tap into is exactly what a lot of cybersecurity professionals need to hear. 
You know, it's extremely helpful to listen to and learn from other people's stories and learn from and be inspired by the obstacles that they have had to overcome along the way. Because a lot of times the obstacles are the same. A lot of time the obstacles are the same. And then everybody has their own unique story to tell. And so, which, which is very interesting. So if you haven't listened to last week's show yet, it's a great one to listen to, especially if you get some time off, you're relaxing. Maybe you have some, uh, you're on break this week. You have some time off from work, which is great. So that's the Chief Information Security Officer of Siena, Andy Bonello, on last week's episode. That's episode number 114 of Task Force 7 Radio. Well, if you're listening to us live on Voice America right now, or maybe someone just sent you the link to this episode, you might be wondering how you can listen to all the previous Task Force 7 Radio episodes on playback. Just go to our new TF7 Radio site at www.tf7radio.com and hit the episode tab at the top of the homepage, and you can find all the TF7 Radio episodes at your fingertips. And I promise you, and I'll mention it again, probably during the show, that we're going to get this site updated uh, to make sure that you can get all the episodes in that episode library, because we got some catching up to do. Um, and once we do that, we'll make it known. It's a lot easier to find, I think, uh, in the format that we have it, and uh, it's a lot easier to share on social media, so we'll get that stuff out to you guys right away. So we're on at least a dozen different playback mediums now, and I think we've made it super simple for you to find them all. When we get this updated, you just hit the subscribe tab at the top right of the homepage, and you'll see your entire selection of playback mediums right there. And most importantly, you can subscribe to our show right from the TF7 radio site. So we're going to get that up and running too soon, and I think we're going to get uh, uh, the capability to actually get into your emails, the, the weekly descriptions, and the e-cards that we sent out. So that'll be a lot of fun, and I think it'll be a lot easier for you to uh, stay in tune with the Task Force 7 Radio, the guests and the topics that we have coming up. So check us out, folks, www.tf7radio.com to hear any of our episodes at your convenience, 24-7, 365, anytime, anywhere around the globe. And as always, whatever you do, don't forget to subscribe. That No matter what medium you like. If you like iTunes, go on iTunes and subscribe. We just love it when you subscribe. So we got a great show planned for you this evening, one that includes a variety of different topics that were all hot during 2019. And we could probably do, you know, five or six, seven shows just on the topics that we're going to talk about. We're going to jam sort of all into one, one uh, show, which is a lot of fun. And there's no one else better to talk on this wide variety of subject matter than Josh Lefkowitz and Chris Camacho. They have the experience to do it. Many of you listening are probably already familiar with these two gentlemen, but let me tell you a little bit about them. Josh Lefkowitz is the Chief Executive Officer of Flashpoint, where he executes the company's strategic vision to empower organizations with business risk intelligence. He has worked extensively with authorities to track and analyze terrorist groups, and he has also served as a consultant to the FBI's senior management team and worked for a top-tier global investment bank. Mr. Lefkowitz, Lefkowitz is super smart. He holds a MBA from Harvard, and a BA from Williams College. Let's talk a little bit about Chris. Chris Camacho is the Chief Strategy Officer of Flashpoint. He leads the company's sales and client engagement and development teams, which also includes customer success, solution architecture, business development, strategic integrations, and the FP Collab sharing community. So with over 15 years of cybersecurity leadership experience, Mr. Camacho has spearheaded initiatives across operational strategy, incident response, threat management, and security operations to ensure cyber risk postures align with business goals. 
most recently as a senior vice president of information security at the Bank of America. He was responsible for overseeing the threat management program. And as an entrepreneur, Mr. Camacho also serves as the CEO for Ninja Jobs. This is a career matching community for elite cybersecurity talent. And hopefully we'll have some time to ask him all about that because that's super exciting and interesting. And he has a BS in decision sciences and management of information systems from George Mason University. So it's time to welcome both our guests to the show, the Chief Executive Officer and Chief Strategy Officer of Flashpoint, Mr. Josh Lefkowitz and Mr. Chris Camacho. Gentlemen, welcome to Task Force 7 Radio. Good morning. Thanks for having us. Great yes, to be here. Thanks so much. Hey, Ray, I really appreciate you guys coming on the show. Happy New Year to you both. We're going to end the, uh, the year strong here. Uh, I've only got a couple of days left. Um, I want to talk a little bit about intelligence. It's what you guys do. And in, in, this is one of the biggest topics of the show that we have. I think our, our, our audience is very interested in, in threat intelligence and how it's used. So I kind of want to start off with that. I know that Flashpoint doesn't take a traditional approach to threat intelligence. And I think most people think of threat intelligence in terms of a very tactical sort of cyber approach. Describe your vision of business risk intelligence and how it branches beyond cyber. For sure. So you hit the nail on the head that historically threat intelligence has really been an avalanche of, of tactical indicators. We're talking hashes, domains, IP addresses, and they're often woefully lacking in context. And I know you guys both came out of government law enforcement backgrounds where intelligence was much more than that and, and certainly have built careers in the enterprise where you've seen the power that intelligence can provide beyond just feeding into the SOC or the SIM. And that's our vision. It's about how can intelligence, both strategic and tactical, really provide relevant context to business units across an organization or in the case of the public sector, uh, different mission requirements to inform decision making, improve preparation and response. And in what we've seen, there's really an opportunity for intelligence to not only support and inform traditional use cases like incident response and security operations, but much more broadly. We're talking insider threat, fraud, third-party risk, anti-money laundering, executive and employee protection, and physical security. So that's really what we've seen uh, resonate very powerfully in the market, and we're, continue, we're excited to continue into 2020 on that path. So I, th I think it's really important that people understand that because I think some folks like to segregate the intelligence so much in an organization and it really doesn't work that way. I mean, and, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, keep me honest here, but when you set up these threat intelligence uh, models, you really have to have all these, all these different verticals interact with each other in a way where you can get the value out of the intelligence that you're gathering, Correct. Correct. Yeah, I don't, I don't see. So I, I, I think it's a big fight um, yeah, to do this in some organizations. Now, many, many large enterprises seem to be increasingly shifting away from this traditional SOC model and sort of moving towards the cyber fusion center model. And, some, and they do it very differently. Some actually are replacing the SOC with what they call a fusion center. Some people are adding a fusion center to the model and keeping the SOCs. Um, I'd be very interested in your opinion. What, what makes the fusion model so appealing, and how does Flashpoint's business risk intelligence support that model, and how does it work? Yeah, great question. Uh, we've seen um, fusion models uh, for the past, I'd say five or six years now, with mostly the financials trying to start it from a physical perspective, so trying to bring teams together into one area. 
But uh, as they quickly found out, it's hard to bring everybody together in a room in a central location, especially for these global companies where it's hard to get people to move. So over the last two years, there's been a big uh, ramp up of the cyber fusion models, which to me is a great, uh, a great win for everybody. When I used to run a threat intelligence team, uh, I inherited a team that used to only be focused on malware. So looking at indicators, uh, getting the C2s and just pushing it up to a proxy or a firewall, uh, and that was it. But over time, we discovered that you know, all the technology that companies are buying should be doing that work for them. And threat intelligence teams started shifting their focus to working what we call business risk intelligence, learning the areas of the business within fraud, corporate security, third-party risk, insider threat. And that's, I think, where the evolution of these uh, fusion uh, fusion um, models and converge intelligence uh, have happened where teams now can, you know, via a portal, via a platform, whether it's SharePoint, whether it's some central repository that's custom built, whether it's the SIM, whether it's the threat intelligence platform, or even like even our platform, Flashpoint's platform, they can all work together, share intelligence, and really uh, learn from each other what the fraud team has, you know, what's actually hitting uh, and impact the financial institution and what a cyber threat intelligence team is collecting from, you know, leaked email accounts or the C2 nodes that are coming from customer accounts, bringing all that data together uh, and telling a better story to reduce risk uh, that then CISOs have you know, better data to report up to their board or their leadership that has a broader picture of, you know, the what risks were reduced from cyber fusion models. Uh, and we're seeing more and more of that, not just at large enterprises, but these smaller companies that are more nimble that see it as a way to scale out their teams when it's hard to hire people, hard to find good talent, uh, and then make folks more general because all of a sudden I have a cyber threat person that's learning the fraud world, that's also learning the corporate security world, that's also learning the network security world, and while they might not be the extreme experts on all those domains, it's enough to reduce the risk in our organization. And it's exciting for me because I think this is where the future of uh, cyber threat intelligence is headed, bringing everyone together either within the SOC or as part of a SOC. Yeah, you know, I couldn't agree with you more. And what you're describing, at least in my opinion, is so difficult to do in corporate because you have all these, you know, political silos, you know, and these people that work in these myopic environments sometimes and bringing them together, I'm sorry. It's just really, really difficult. I know myopic can be a very uh, sort of inflammatory word to use, but I think that it's, it, it's just so difficult to get people to understand that when you have the physical threat intelligence and the geopolitical intelligence and the regulatory intelligence and all these different intelligence models that you're bringing into one place, that when they're in one central place, and the intelligence is organized in such a way where you get the most value out of it and you can actually disseminate it to the right people who needed to make critical business decisions. That's where I think the model um, really gets the most success and, is, is, and, 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 and the most value uh, in, in the organization. So in your opinion, what does a successful fusion center look like? Like, tell me what, what does that look like? We know, okay, we know all these people have to communicate, right? And you're going to get a whole bunch of people come in and say, 
oh, uh, well, this is the way we should do it. We should have five different managers and they're going to all get together or we should have one manager and then they're going to have the verticals underneath. There's a, there's a ton of different ways that you can do it. I have my opinion about how it should be done. What, what do you guys think that looks like? Where should the fusion center model be implemented today? And I also want to talk about public sector uh, operations versus commercial, but give me your opinion about what, what do you think it looks like? What's the best model? Yeah, George. So uh, similar to like what I was talking about. So what we've seen is in order for a cyber uh, fusion center to work uh, in the best possible way, it starts with the C-suite, right? It starts with the CISO. The CISO has to understand and, and want uh, the teams to come together and set the mandate because, as you said, multiple managers usually operating in silos uh, and usually only interested in their mission or what they're hired to do, and then that pushes down to their teams. So to all of a sudden disrupt that model and bring everyone together has to start with the top. So as long as the CISO is on board, sets the mandate that we are going to build a cyber fusion center, then it becomes about technology. What technologies does a company currently have in-house that can be leveraged for everyone to be talking to each other? Uh, like I've seen, like I've mentioned, successful SharePoint implementation. Sometimes it can even be in Slack. Sometimes it can be within the SIM. You know, some of these larger companies may have a Palantir-like uh, solution that can be leveraged. But as long as there's a data repository where everyone can at least have a sense of what data they have access to and visibility into, and in some type of communication mechanism, uh, it can even be email. It can be, um, again, back to the Slack-like or Teams, Microsoft Teams, uh, or you know, some type of internal instant messaging program where folks can talk in real time and add their perspective. That's going to be what's valuable. Everything, in my opinion, has to be done in real time or as quick as possible because that's how fast the threats are moving. Now, as far as the teams and their managers and their mandate, as long as it starts with the top, then the goal is to, you know, like one mission, reduce risk across the enterprise. If I'm a bank, what's my mission? Reduce fraud, uh, make sure that the customers can access their online banking, make sure that the institutional investment can do what they need to do, uh, and, and business operates as expected, right? And then brand, reputation, et cetera. That right there brings together so many different teams inside an organization where when the CISO sets the mandate, all the managers then start talking about their own programs. What are my, you know, what business requirements do I have to build my successful program? And let's look at creating new priority intelligence requirements, right? What does it mean now that my threat team is talking to my fraud team, is talking to my insider threat team? What data do you guys have access to? What mandates do you have? What are you trying to reduce? And where can we help each other? So that when all these teams come together, there is a bigger lens of you know, the, the threat landscape in order to reduce that threat landscape uh, with everybody coming together, having online communication, bringing the data sets that they have access to, the vendors that they're working with, you know, access to internal data that they probably never had access to before, and then creating reports, uh, creating uh, everything that's needed for a CISO, like I've mentioned, to tell a better story to uh, their, their executive management team. Now, we've, seen this, we've seen this work uh, excellently in public sector. I mean, US CERT essentially does that. They brought everyone together on to Virginia over here, where it's these, you know, like the MKIC and all these other centers bringing all these people together with the mission of obviously reducing threats to the uh, uh, to to what they have purview to uh, to help the, 
to help the government. Hey, Chris, real quick, Andy. So, so with regards to like accessing the data, you mentioned people, you know, going into the portal and or, or getting reports, right? But is there a point at which, you know, the fusion centers are saying, you know what, we, we've got to protect this data and we can only let it out so far, right? So is it, is it pretty much a push model or are you making the data access, you know, the successful model self-service where business folks are logging into the portal, getting the data they want and, and not interacting with, you know, the fusion center itself outside of the portal? So this is back to what I meant. Every company has their own requirements. Um, there are so many companies out there that are very strict about sharing data outside their organization, of course, right? They have whatever requirements via, uh, it, whether it's regulatory or just policy, in that they, their data can't leave, you know, whatever systems they're on. But this is where the benefit of a CyberFusion Center comes together, because if I'm in that corporation, even though I may not be in that fraud team and I may not be able to see customer data, I can ask the questions to my, uh, colleague and that team and is able to get me the reply without me having to see PII or you know consumer banking data as an example. Uh, what the other benefit of bringing all these teams together is if I have access to various platforms and data, I'm the one that can log in, pull that data together and then probably bring it into that central repository so that not everyone you know within all these organizations in the, in the fusion concept have to log into the same platform to do the same thing. Everyone has a mission. Everyone knows what data they have access to, what their skill sets are, how they can help uh, the enterprise bring that data and pull it to bring it into some other type of platform where they're doing their work in real time. Andy. So we're talking a little bit about uh, the commercial sector versus the private sector. How does these, how do these models uh, look? Are they, do they look the same? Are they different? I mean, because some people think when they think business risk intelligence, they mean the business only really applies to the commercial sector. How does it apply to the public sector as well? Is it the same model? Is it a different model? Yeah, so certainly a lot of parallels. And, and as you two represent, there's been also a, a really massive transformation of intelligence operations within the commercial world, within the enterprise, where folks are coming out of law enforcement, IC, DOD backgrounds into the enterprise. Uh, so speaking more specifically about the public sector, we see a lot of resonance uh, with the approach that we take with law enforcement, with defense, with civilian agencies, really supporting an array of different use cases and requirements. And that can range from traditional cybersecurity and network defense to more mission-oriented elements like counterterrorism, counter-narcotics, illicit finance, and cybercrime. And one of the really added benefits of our approach, because our methodologies because the data that we get, gather are all considered uh, under the umbrella of a PAI or publicly available information. It provides government entities and users with considerable flexibility. And again, since you guys came out of the government space, you know all of the, the rigor and process and complexity that having a uh, classified stamp on uh, any piece of data or methodology can create, particularly if you're looking to bring uh, cases and investigations into open court through prosecutorial means. And so uh, we've found uh, over a, a long history of working hand in hand in partnership with US and allied governments that that approach has been uh, very beneficial. So I think, you know, this is where it gets really interesting for people. This is the really interesting kind of intelligence. I mean, I, at least I find it interesting, obviously, being a former Secret Service agent. Um, a lot of this is, is, is you know, imperative and for you to be able to do your job correctly. But Chris, you spent 15 years on the practitioner's side. 
uh, in, in cybersecurity, including running intelligence for one of the largest financial institutions in the world. What led you to make the switch to the vendor side? And what are your some biggest uh, takeaways from that transition? I mean, I'm really uh, interested to hear what you have to say about that. Yeah, uh, so it's been about four years since I've left uh, the practitioner side. I actually loved my time at two large financial institutions. You know, at the last one I was at, I learned a tremendous amount about building these you know, cyber fusion centers, in my opinion, uh, and in the concept of business risk intelligence. So while we were building a mission to reduce threat brand protection and ensure that availability was most important for the customers, I was also a huge collaborator and networker. So I was very active in FSISAC, very active in other uh, information sharing groups, uh, which included working with retail, healthcare, the smaller financial institutions, technology companies. And I was always intrigued about how others uh, built their programs, you know, how they set their requirements, uh, how they um, were protecting their infrastructure and protecting the employees and fighting cybercrime, and then how that paralleled into law enforcement support and U.S. government support or global government support for that matter. So uh, I actually was Flashpoint's uh, second official customer. So I was an early believer of Flashpoint and what they were doing. Um, so I, I, at the time, Josh was both my sales rep and customer success rep and uh, solutions architect and everything in between. So I got to see the company grow. And as I saw them grow, I was very intrigued in the mission that they had. You know, it was obviously fighting cybercrime, but at the same time, they were part of some of the efforts that really put folks, uh, you know, they were really bringing into the limelight of uh, stopping cybercrime, maybe even pro part of prosecutions, um, and then really making an impact on my business and my program in order to tell a better story for, uh, for my return on investment. So... Around the time I got the itch to join the vendor side, uh, talk to Josh, uh, let him know what I was thinking, and he came up with an opportunity that, you know, try this and see if you like what we're doing here at Flashpoint, and then decide if you'd like to join full-time. So I, I consulted with Flashpoint for three months, and it's exactly what I was hoping um, I would have the opportunity to do. Quickly, you know, uh, I was able to, to work within uh the Flashpoint team, executive team, and learn about what their customers were doing beyond what I was building up on my side. So I could, I could feel that I was quickly making an impact to their customers because I was able to provide input of how I built my programs at one of the largest banks, um, and that was valuable. But at the same time, I was intrigued about uh, you know, being now on the inside, how others were doing their programs, you know, how they built their teams, how global they were, or how small they were, or how like you know smaller financial institutions were able to do so much with let's say two people a CISO and then one deputy CISO almost, and then I really enjoyed that. So I decided to stay full time. And over the years, you know, I've taken advantage of the opportunity to travel, meet with customers, meet with prospects, learn everything about multiple industries, uh, talk about the mission of how I built my programs or how I've seen others build successful programs as well, and really be an advocate uh, for what our company does with intelligence and even this cyber fusion model showing how data cannot just be applicable to cyber threat intelligence, but so many different teams and how to leverage that data uh, in order to disrupt cyber crime, reduce fraud, uh, 
protect the executives, et cetera. So I've been excited about working on the, on the vendor side, uh, especially at Flashpoint. We've built together a great team. I brought my experience from the practitioner side, which also gives a little bit of an edge to talk to customers and prospects because I've actually been there, done that. Uh, and while things have changed since the four years I've left, uh, I feel like I've kept up enough with learning from our customers that you know, through the evolution of the, the programs and how they've evolved, you know, I'm right there with them, which is exactly what I wanted. I can't believe it's been four years when you said that. I was like, wow, four years ago. I mean, it seems like, you know, not that long ago to me. The time really flies. I mean, I remember the day you announced that you were leaving. So, um, look, what you're doing is an inspiration to a lot of people. And, you know, I, I don't know if people tell you that often, but I really think it is. Uh, I don't see a lot of people transitioning out of the, the, uh, the big banks and into, um, into the vendor side, into the entrepreneur side. Uh, very often, I think they, they like the cozy spot that they have there and, and, uh, and there's nothing wrong with that, but it just takes a lot of courage to do what you did and, uh, and, and congrats on all the success that you're having. I mean, it's awesome. So I want to talk to you more about that when we come back, but we got to transition into a commercial break right now. Let's stick with us. Stick with us, folks. We're going to be talking about threat intelligence and fusion centers. Um, and we're going to get into some very, some specifics and we're going to get a little technical in the next, uh, next, uh, next segment. So stick with us after the break. So, hey, if you're a social media junkie, don't forget to follow TF7 Radio on your favorite social media platform. Follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and even Instagram by searching at TF7 Radio, and you'll be connected to the extended TF7 family. For any inquiries regarding sponsoring the show or suggestions for topics or guests, please email me directly at george.redis at tf7radio.com. That's george.redis at tf7, that's with the number 7, radio.com. I want to remind our audience that we're building the world's premier cybersecurity professional network, Task Force 7. I'm really excited about this, folks. Tune in over the next several months for more information on this much-needed and much-awaited-for network. We're going to solve some problems together, I promise you. Task Force 7, get in the fight. We're going to pause for some quick messages from our sponsors, and then we'll be right back with the CEO and Chief Strategy Officer of Flashpoint, Mr. Josh Lefkowitz and Mr. Chris Camacho. Whatever you do, don't go away. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. In today's interconnected world, digital transformation is taking us on a journey towards exciting new ways to work, live, and communicate. In business, staying out in front of the competition means pushing the boundaries of the status quo and exploring the possibilities of the future. However, pushing forward into this fast-changing digital landscape brings a new level of uncertainty and risk that must be measured, understood, and managed. By delivering state-of-the-art cyber risk analytics, X-Analytics is setting the standard to bring business clarity to the complex cyber threats organizations face each and every day. When it comes to understanding your financial exposure to cyber risk, trust what the global cyber insurance industry and Fortune 500 companies trust. Trust X-Analytics to guide you through the uncertainty into cyber risk clarity. For more information about X-Analytics, visit our website today at x-analytics.com. That's x-analytics.com. X-Analytics, setting the standard in the enterprise cyber risk management. 
email is having an identity crisis. It's just too easy for attackers to spoof trusted brands or even the government. That's why over 80% of email attacks are based on fake identities. The solution is to stop the fakes before they get to the inbox. That's why enterprises use Valley Mail. It's a trusted identity-based email security solution. Find out if your domain can be spoofed and request a complete free phishing analysis at valleymail.com. As CISOs manage known malware attacks, they also contend with the unknown unknowns. With 24-7 hacker innovation, where do CISOs place their next security investment bet? Find the answer with Signet. With forums and public and private partnership dinners in Toronto, London, Singapore, Tokyo, and across the U.S., Signet is a mission-focused, purpose-driven global community, advancing the next generation of cybersecurity solutions. As an entrepreneurial ecosystem super connector, Signet brings innovators, top cybersecurity professionals, solution providers, investors, and government executives into a collaborative alliance. Join Signet's global community to empower your organization and the industry to defeat hackers with cybersecurity's next generation of innovation. Learn more at Secure. Security-innovation.org or Google Signet S-I-N-E-T. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. We're back with our special guest, the Chief Executive Officer and Chief Strategy Officer of Flashpoint, Mr. Josh Lefkowitz and Mr. Chris Camacho. So, gentlemen, Flashpoint has a long history of, of research and insight into what's happening in the underground and the dark web. And I think this is a really big topic, interesting topic for a lot of people who listen to the show. How would you characterize criminal activity today? Uh, and has there been any major shifts or trends in the last year that you think are, are noteworthy to mention what's going on out there in the dark web. For sure. And this is, uh, needless to say, a, a massive topic. We could spend the entire show talking about so yep. many different <laughs> developments in an uh, incredibly fast-moving landscape. For the, in the sake of time, I'd, I'd highlight two headlines. Uh, one is around the continued volatile state of darknet markets. And it's really been a fascinating year when you look back uh, at what's been going on with darknet markets over the last 12 months. So whether it be uh, a number of planned shutdowns, we've seen exit scams, we've seen law enforcement takedowns, we've seen extortion attempts and DDoS attacks, uh, nothing has stayed constant in that landscape. So when we talk about 
uh, exit scams back over the summer. The nightmare market administrators allegedly stole $2 million from marketplace members. We talk about law enforcement operations. Uh, this spring, we saw the takedown of Wall Street Market, which had over a million users. Uh, and then this fall, there was the law enforcement takedown of the Berlusconi Market. Uh, and we also saw the indictment here in the U.S. of the owners of a site called Deep.Web, which was uh, allegedly getting millions of dollars in kickbacks related to referrals that they were pushing to different darknet markets. And then when it comes to shutdowns, uh, Dream was, of course, the most prominent. That shut down this spring in the wake of an extended DDoS attack, as well as uh, some claims about a purported ransom event. And as we've seen over the years, whenever there's this type of vacuum, whenever this, there's this type of power struggle, there's fierce competition to become the primary market for uh, dark web transactions. It's an extraordinarily lucrative one, as we saw in the case of some of the revelations that came out after Silk Road and, and Alpha Bay and Hansa. Uh, and these are, at the end of the day, financially motivated actors who uh, are looking at this as a very profitable business endeavor. Um, and then the second is really uh, about the rise of encrypted chat applications, most prominently Telegram, that have undoubtedly really empowered an expansive ecosystem of criminally oriented channels. Uh, really? why, why, why Telegram over the other ones, you think? Yeah, it's a great question. And <laughs> one of the things that we've seen as, as a primary driver of the type of activity that we've seen is Telegram's stance on uh, cooperation with law enforcement. They heretofore have not provided encryption keys or user data to law enforcement. Uh, and so threat actors certainly feel that that is uh, a haven where they're able to operate with uh, relative impunity. And then they're also drawn to the immediacy that CHAP applications provide. That's the, uh, the, the primary mechanism that we operate in today. People love to text to be able to have that, uh, that direct interaction. Uh, Telegram facilitates that. And then on top of that, Telegram is a really fertile source that provides uh, easy uploading and sharing of multimedia. So whether we're talking about imagery, videos, uh, and whether you're, you're hawking drugs and, and want to... Uh, upload pictures of your stash, whether you're an insider and, and uh, you know, trying to partner up with somebody, you may take a picture of you in your work uniform, you may take a picture of a particular device that you have access to. It's a way to very quickly and, and easily validate who you are in a world where trust is the fundamental underpinning of, uh, of your credibility. Look, if you're listening to this show right now and you're into law enforcement and you like cyber, this is why you get in the game right? You're in the game because of those things that Josh was talking about. These are fun, fun cases to work. You know, George and I both worked them. It is, it take, it's more of a spy game than a law enforcement mission, right? And uh, George, I don't know if you remember, but when we're talking to Admiral Rogers, right, at the break, he asked us why we left, right? And we've cited basically what Josh is saying. The landscape changed so much that it became more of an intelligence mission. And man, we, we got into his world for a little bit and we loved it. So if you're looking into this as a career field, folks, like this is why. Yeah, this is challenging stuff, man, because it, requ it requires several different disciplines really to be successful. I think to some degree, some of the mainstream awareness of what these markets were all about uh, did come up with Silk Road and, and the, the Silk Road takedown in, in 2013. And I guess it was high opening in terms of the drugs and weapons and stuff that were involved on, and advertised on this platform. I mean, what happens when one of these markets such as Silk Road or Alpha Bay, I think you mentioned, is, is taken down? How do these threat actors, how do they react and, and what concerns them the most? And then and what happens to the market after that? So it's really fascinating. And uh, like all ecosystems, there, there are multiple players that, uh, 
that make moves and then those moves create counter moves or adaptive moves. And so when you think about the ecosystem of darknet markets, there are a couple core players, right? You've got the users, you've got the administrators, and then you've got law enforcement. Um, and when you think about the perspective and the requirements and the needs and wants of a user, uh, it's focused around security, it's focused on privacy, it's focused on availability, and, and interrelated to that is convenience. If you think about the administrators, they have very similar wants and needs in terms of access to a, a broad uh, user base and uh, really feeling comfortable and confident in their ability to access those users uh, with a high degree of stability and, uh, and, and line of sight. Uh, and they're financially motivated. So there is very much a Darwinian struggle that takes place to fill the void when you have a massive takedown like you've seen in recent years with Silk Road and uh, Alpha Bay and, and Hansa and others. Uh, and then there's the cat and mouse response of law enforcement who knows that at the end of the day, trust is the most important currency in the underground. And they've taken really creative uh, steps to try to undermine that. One of the most prominent uh, operations that law enforcement ran targeting darknet markets was uh, after Alphabay went down, they had uh, taken control of Hansa and shoved or rather uh, really pushed and through a number of different mechanisms, a large user community over to Hansa. Uh, and as a result of actually controlling that marketplace, we're able to gather a tremendous array of, uh, of valuable intelligence that informed not only their uh, prosecution and takedown of that marketplace, but also how they continued to snowball that into other operations across the darknet market landscape. So it's really been fascinating to see all of these moves and counter moves uh, as a result of law enforcement action, uh, mistrust amongst different players in the underground community, uh, as well as, again, the, the ferocious financial incentives that take place that drive behavior. Yeah, I think it's interesting because in, from a law enforcement view, at times, if, if, if you can't disable these organizations, disrupting them is the next option and making it more difficult and more expensive for them to operate and trust in their environment is key. I mean, they're all criminals. They're criminals, right? I mean, I don't think anybody trusts anybody on those, on those platforms. Um, but, uh, you know, it's interesting on how they operate and what they do. And then, you know, to anticipate that afterwards, obviously, is a, is a, and to be right about it, is a, is a major advantage for, for the good guys. So if, if we want to talk more specifically about the market for stolen credit cards in the underground, I guess Joker's stash remained in the headlines in 2019. Um, can you talk more about that market and its role in the stolen credit card economy? And I can't believe I have to re refer to this whole credit card as an economy. It's a whole economy out there of stolen credit cards. But you can tell us a little bit about that. What are your thoughts? Yep. Thanks for the question. It, it, it fascinates me as well that there is a whole economy for selling uh, credit cards. Uh, Joker Stash was definitely prevalent this in 2019. I think uh, a lot of fraud teams and companies like ourselves uh, were expecting uh, or had huddled up every Friday for what was known as Joker Stash Friday because for some reason that's when he uh, or the community of the Joker Stash wanted to release cards. So uh, on Fridays, it would be, you know, a, a dump and trying to quickly figure out what the point of compromise was. So what Joker Stash is, it's an illicit community where cards are sold um, and distributed among uh, illicit threat actors, mostly coming from, you know, ATM skimmers or merchants who are using point-of-sale malware that are compromised. Um, and 
over time, the cards are collected and then resold. Um, it's really become prevalent. Um, uh, it made significant amount of news this year when one of uh, one of the credit card forums, Brian's Club, uh, was talked about on Brian Krebs' story. Uh, that dump had a ton of cards, millions of cards that you know were released and then dumped into uh, the underground. And I believe financial uh, institutions quickly jumped on that data and then tried to figure out fraud um, mitigation uh, tactics, which was huge for them as well. But what it showed is that, uh, back to what we were talking about earlier, cyber fusion centers, where threat intel teams may have access to services like Flashpoint or others, uh, and then they get the access to these dumps quickly, and then the fraud teams are as aware that these are out there or how they can quickly get access to that information. For companies that were working on the fusion center components, what we saw was you know, those two teams quickly working with each other. One area, back to your question, Andy, earlier, the push-pull, one, one team is pulling that information and then passing it over to the team where that data is more or less controlled or can't be released, and using that data for analysis and looking at ways that it can mitigate the fraud via other technologies. Um, but I believe 2020 is going to be even more prevalent uh, for Joker Stash and other credit card uh, illicit forms. Um, and I think that what we're starting to see is fraud teams are getting more smart about how they uh, react or respond to these dumps um, using their bins and looking at expiration dates, getting to them quicker or trying to identify the point of compromise much sooner so that they can mitigate their risk. Uh, but it's been an interesting 2019 for the list of credit card forms, uh, specifically Joker Stash. Chris, do we see any shift in the players in terms of region of the world? You know, I know for a long time we were you know, heavily focused on Russian-speaking actors because of the way the underground was structured. Is there, has there been any shifts? Is there collaboration with extremist groups? Like, what, What's the current landscape there? I'm not aware of any shifts. shifts. I think uh, one could say it's uh, still what we've seen in the past. It's just been more prevalent as, you know, as – more and more merchants have come on online and some don't have budgets for information security. There's just been more and more breaches, uh, more collection of the cards that quickly get dumped into these environments. But I think you, you can say that the, the, the source is still the same as far as the region that are working on this. So I want to talk about uh, the way people move money in the underground market, and it's obviously imperative for them to be able to do this anonymous, anonymously so that they can uh, engage in their criminal activity. And there's been considerable speculation about Bitcoin being replaced as the primary cryptocurrency utilized in the criminal underground in favor of less traceable cryptocurrencies. It, was this something that you observed in 2019? And, and it is, I think that would be good for, for Bitcoin if it happened, but you know, who knows what they think. Yeah, there certainly was a lot of speculation uh, over recent months, particularly uh, heading into 2019, as far as whether that would be a, a headline trend that would be observed. Uh, I'd say in the aggregate, the bottom line up front answer to your question is that uh, we've only seen that in, in a minority of situations. Typically, uh, that has been employed by particular actors who require a very high level of operational security to obfuscate their activities. They're aware that there are uh, tracking tools that are available for uh, popular blockchain currencies and that 
uh, Bitcoin may not be as anonymous as it's uh, as it as it was as it was originally thought to be. Uh, but at the end of the day, and this comes back to some of my comments when you asked about darknet market trends, uh, convenience is still paramount. And the bottom line is that Bitcoin is is the most liquid market. Uh, and particularly as we look at ransomware payments, for example, when you look at the mat order of magnitude of some of the demands that are being made uh, that are now stretching into the seven figures, it's very difficult to find that type of liquidity uh, with uh, the, the type of organizations that they're targeting. And so uh, we continue to see Bitcoin as the primary currency being utilized uh, in the underground ecosystem today. Let's let's shift gears one more time here and talk about ransomware. I'm, I know I'm jumping all over the place, but I kind of want to uh, cover a bunch of different topics that I think our audience is going to find very interesting. Ransomware was huge in the news this year, um, and I think a lot of these criminals were targeting uh, state and local governments and local school districts, uh, especially edu educational institutions. Um, what trends are you seeing around ransomware that have sort of fueled this whole resurgence? Yeah, it's been a wild year when it comes to ransomware and, and so many different twists and turns in the evolution of that landscape. So a few that I would uh, point to. So first and foremost, we saw a very material shift from what looked to be uh, what I would describe as, as untargeted attacks that really had a, a scattered approach to far more targeted attacks. And, and you listed out uh, several of the, the, the categories of organizations and entities that have been targeted. Obviously, state and, and local governments have been in the crosshairs. We've seen a heavy focus on healthcare providers. We've seen universities and colleges and school districts, school districts targeted. And we've also seen uh, an interesting trend with managed security providers uh, being targeted as well. Uh, and hand in hand with that evolution of the targeting strategy has been uh, a higher degree of sophistication of the actors behind these campaigns um, and a, uh, a refinement of their ransom uh, ask strategy where they are increasingly tuning their demands to a victim's perceived willingness to pay. Uh, and as an outgrowth of that, we are seeing a, uh, a skyrocketing in the uh, size of certain ransom demands, many that have uh, climbed north of a million dollars. So really, uh, you know, an, an evolving landscape there. And then a trend that we've seen emerge uh, recently in the last couple months is around actors who have deployed ransomware, but in tandem with that, are dumping data that they've accessed during the intrusion in an effort to really pressure the targeted company to pay. Uh, so one headline uh, example of that was Allied Universal, so the group behind the Maze ransomware. They published nearly 700 megabytes of data and files that they'd stolen from that company back in November. Uh, and then this month, the actors behind Maze stood up a website where they began listing the names of companies uh, that they'd targeted who had declined to pay. So really a, a pressure campaign to out those entities and uh, really incentivize them to uh, cooperate from a financial perspective. Uh, we also saw a Canadian insurance provider that was uh, targeted and then some of their data was subsequently dumped. They're beginning to work with different media organizations to shine a brighter spotlight on organizations that they want to ramp up the pressure on. Uh, so no shortage of, of different evolutions in this uh, fast moving landscape over the last 12 months. So this is really interesting. I feel like we could do a whole show on just ransomware. And, 
you know, one of the, the, the thing that I would say, hey, look, if, this, if ransomware attacks keep occurring, it must signal in some way that people are paying. And I know there's, I, there's no statistics out there that I could see the metrics to see on, on and how people are paying. But I know that, you know, the FBI has come out and basically said, you know, you, you should not pay these people uh, when you've been attacked with, with, with ransomware. And I think, you know, I think there's been some talk of even uh, prosecution and I haven't done too much research around this, but I think there is, uh, there is a statute out there that people or, or law enforcement is using to, you know, uh, to charge people who actually pay uh, people, uh, the, the bad guys when, when they've been attacked with a ransomware attack. So what are your thoughts around this? I mean, what is really going on in an organization? And, and, I, and I have another question around this too as a follow-up is, if, I ask for, if I'm a bad guy and I, I, I launch a ransomware attack and I'm asking you for a million dollars is one of the, the numbers that you gave, if, I'm, if, 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 the, if the corporation's willing to pay 500000 do I settle for that? How, does that, how, how is that working out in, in, uh, in your mind? Sure. So it, it's, you know, obviously a, a complex and nuanced topic that uh, really generates a lot of strong opinions on both sides of the spectrum. Uh, and we've had the opportunity to work with an array of different organizations that have been impacted by really devastating ransomware attacks over the, uh, over the last year and, and beyond that. Um, and from what we've seen from how they handle it and the decision-making process that they go through, it ultimately is a, is a business decision. And what they end up doing is weighing the financial and other costs of uh, what certainly can amount to a hefty ransom versus the business impact of uh, weeks uh, or even months of downtime where the costs of uh, being offline can materially outweigh the total ransom demand. Uh, and it's been interesting to see how uh, different voices have come into this conversation. Forrester published a report uh, earlier this year where they made formal recommendations around how to handle ransomware attacks. And their recommendation was to really take a, a dual, dual track approach where you bring in a conventional incident response team to run your IR process. You do everything you can to understand the, uh, the backups that you have in place and, and what viable path you have if you were not to pay the ransom. And then at the same time, beginning communications with the attacker uh, that may include uh, discussions of a discount as, as you asked about. Uh, and if you decide to go down the path where, uh, again, that business trade-off lends you to engaging with the threat actor and, and uh, paying for the decryption key, then you move forward in that regard. And of course, there are multiple parties that are a part of this discussion in this decision-making process. This often reaches to the levels of the C-suite, uh, involves cyber insurance providers, and provides outside general counsel, involves law enforcement. Um, so a lot of different perspectives that are taken into account uh, for uh, a really complex and, again, nuanced decision-making process. Yeah, it, it, doesn't it go beyond a business decision? Though? It's like a, it, there's a lot of legal risk involved in this discussion, right? Because let's just play out a scenario here where wait, if you pay the ransom and law enforcement is somehow able to track that payment, maybe they have a source inside the organization, you never know um, what, what their intelligence says. And then they're able to track that, that money to be used and and uh, let's just say, in the worst case scenario, to fund a terrorist attack. And, you know, <laughs> I, 
I mean, what, what, what are those types of considerations being spoken about in, in, in the boardroom, you think, when they make these decisions? Or is it clearly, hey, if we don't, <laughs> if we don't pay, we don't, we're, not gonna ha- we're, not, we're never going to get our data back. We're not going to be able to decrypt it. So that's a great point that you raise. And, and there is a ton of thought and care uh, being put into uh, the approach to a really complicated and, and challenging situation. Uh, you know, we talk about different, uh, you know, line of sight that you have on, on who you're fund- ultimately making a, a payment to. Uh, and there certainly are different due diligence steps that you can take to try and get as clear fidelity as possible, all within the realm of, of obvious constraints as far as who's on the other end of that uh, cryptocurrency wallet. Uh, so OFAC has posted uh, publicly a number of, of wallets that they've identified in, in connection with uh, designated individuals or entities. Uh, and so that's certainly one element of a due diligence process. Uh, and I think the, the regulatory compliance and legal environment from a law enforcement perspective uh, will continue to evolve as ransomware becomes even more of an issue in 2020. We've heard uh, folks from NSA and elsewhere describe ransomware uh, as a national security issue as the 2020 elections approach. Uh, and like so much when it comes to cyber cybersecurity law, uh, it is evolving with the landscape. So I, I think we'll continue to see different tweaks as far as formal uh, U.S. government guidance uh, as they deal with the realities of, of a situation that's not going away and is only getting worse. Yeah, I haven't, you know, I just searched real quick and I haven't been able to see any examples of the FBI or any federal law enforcement agency charging a victim with paying their ransom in some way. And there's obviously there's a bunch of different charges that I think that can come of that now when you start talking this out. But it exists, it, man, if you put your right between a rock and a hard place with this decision, because, you know, what do you get caught or not? I mean, you're basically funding a global uh, criminal organization at the very best and possible you know, anti-Western uh, and, and, and who knows what kind of activity you could, I mean, it could, I could just go on and on. You could speculate, you know, ter- terrorist funding, obviously. Um, you could speculate until the day is long, but it's, uh, it's, a, it's a really... Uh, interesting on how this is playing out. And I think it all comes down to cyber hygiene. If you got good cyber hygiene to begin with, you don't put yourself in this position, right? So <laughs> it's, it's just making sure that you're not uh, vulnerable to this type of attack is, I guess, the key from out of the gate so you don't have to you know, worry about making this decision in the future. So let's talk about the insider threat a little bit as we continue to hit, a, hit on the hot topics. So the insider threat, I think, continues to be a, a huge uh, focus in, in the enterprise. I think it's always one of the top three uh, material risk that uh, an organization faces, uh, along with things like third-party risk and and uh, you know destructive malware and things like that. What kind of trends are you seeing in the criminal underground in the way enterprises are responding to this type of threat? So, great question. This goes back to what I was saying earlier about you know me learning one way of large financial institution does it, and then how others are doing it in the evolution of insider threat in general. So many folks are obviously uh, focused on insider threat from internal perspective, right? So what insiders do I have um, within my enterprise that I have to be worried about? Uh, there are other areas of th- insider threats that many folks have to start being concerned about, whether it's insider threat recruitment. So somebody uh, in a forum, in a marketplace, uh, in chat services trying to find a potential insider, possibly at one of the stores or within an organization uh, trying to solicit uh, uh, 
information that they want to broker or trade and someone that may have uh, some financial difficulties may jump on that. And that's uh, one area of risk that many companies are starting to take a, uh, starting to take a better look at. Uh, the other areas are, you know, someone has access to a database or a piece of information that they deem may be valuable and similar start posting it on various forms or even we've seen it on Pastebin where they have terrible OPSEC and are just interested in monetizing the information they have uh, and then that quickly becomes uh, a risk for the company. So beyond just looking for the traditional insider threat, there, there is many other areas that teams are starting to evolve into. One of the trending areas that we're starting to see is you know, some organizations or some uh, areas of the world uh, bypass technology altogether and just lure a critical person that may have a lot of knowledge about something deemed important with money uh, and an opportunity to go work for another organization where they can just suck out that information. And I don't even know how organizations are dealing with that from a technology perspective. That's just the evolution of where things are headed, right? So if somebody may come around and offer, you know, one of your current employees 2x their salary, and it's going to be exciting for that person, while little do they know that there is uh, malintentions of bringing that person over uh, just based on the information and the knowledge that that person has. So that's another area that we're starting to see insider threat evolve into. But all in all, this goes back to the fusion concept where together um, – the cyber threat intel teams, fraud teams, and cyber threat teams can work together on a strategy to make sure they're covering all their bases uh, by pulling information from services like us uh, and then telling a better story about how they are reducing insider threat, tracking insider threat, and preventing insider threat uh, beyond the traditional mechanisms that we've known in the past. All right, guys, we've got to take another short break to hear from our sponsors, but don't go away, folks. We'll be right back with our special guest, the Chief Executive Officer and Chief Strategy Officer of Flashpoint, Mr. Josh Lefkowitz and Mr. Chris Camacho. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. In today's interconnected world, digital transformation is taking us on a journey towards exciting new ways to work, live, and communicate. In business, staying out in front of the competition means pushing the boundaries of the status quo and exploring the possibilities of the future. However, pushing forward into this fast-changing digital landscape brings a new level of uncertainty and risk that must be measured, understood, and managed. By delivering state-of-the-art cyber risk analytics, X-Analytics is setting the standard to bring business clarity to the complex cyber threats organizations face each and every day. When it comes to understanding your financial exposure to cyber risk, trust what the global cyber insurance industry and Fortune 500 companies trust. Trust X-Analytics to guide you through the uncertainty into cyber risk clarity. For more information about X-Analytics, visit our website today at x-analytics.com. That's x-analytics.com. X-Analytics, setting the standard in the enterprise cyber risk management. 
Email is having an identity crisis. It's just too easy for attackers to spoof trusted brands or even the government. That's why over 80% of email attacks are based on fake identities. The solution is to stop the fakes before they get to the inbox. That's why enterprises use Valley Mail. It's a trusted identity-based email security solution. Find out if your domain can be spoofed and request a complete free phishing analysis at valleymail.com. As CISOs manage known malware attacks, they also contend with the unknown unknowns. With 24-7 hacker innovation, where do CISOs place their next security investment bet? Find the answer with Signet. With forums and public and private partnership dinners in Toronto, London, Singapore, Tokyo, and across the U.S., Signet is a mission-focused, purpose-driven global community advancing the next generation of cybersecurity solutions. As an entrepreneurial ecosystem super connector, Signet brings innovators, top cybersecurity professionals, solution providers, investors, and government executives into a collaborative alliance. Join Signet's global community to empower your organization and the industry to defeat hackers with cybersecurity's next generation of innovation. Learn more at security-innovation.org or Google Sinet, S-I-N-E-T. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for the keywords voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for voice America. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. We're back with the Chief Executive Officer and Chief Strategy Officer of Flashpoint, Mr. Josh Lefkowitz and Mr. Chris Camacho. So, gentlemen, I want to talk a little bit about some of the, of the, uh, the bigger topics that we've been done in, in segment two and continue the trend for, for segment three as we close out the show here. And I know that Flashpoint works extensively with corporate and physical security teams on a range of different issues and threats. And we've talked about some of them, some of the different verticals that are involved in the whole threat intelligence model that you guys put together. What are some of the most significant issues that are top of mind in the, in the physical and corporate security world? Yeah, it's a topic that we see uh, a lot of complexity around, uh, which is a consistent theme in our conversation today. Uh, two that we'd point to most prominently uh, in recent months within the enterprise. So one is around uh, really the ability to identify personal details of, of key personnel and their families uh, is an increasing concern to many enterprises and, and their corporate and executive protection teams. What we've seen is that uh, the availability of that data, which manifests in uh, a number of different threat vectors, ranging from uh, doxing online to uh, threat actors who have shown up at uh, the personal residences of, uh, of senior executives to uh, swatting uh, and other tactics that are used to uh, disrupt or intimidate or threaten uh, 
senior executives and their family members. Uh, and then secondly, as the geopolitical landscape continues to uh, be tumultuous and continue to evolve, we've seen uh, particular focus and concern around international travel uh, and how business executives may be uh, caught in the intersection of different geopolitical conflicts. And in particular, we've seen a lot of questions emerge uh, as far as how business executives should be approaching travel to China, uh, to Russia, uh, as those relationships uh, you know, continue to be uh, tumultuous and the impact that could have on uh, senior executives who are traveling there. I managed to get through most of this uh, episode without asking you about China, <laughs> because if I do, we, we, we'll, we'll spend the rest of the, 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 the show on it, um, and maybe we can have you back to talk about some of the threats that, that are coming out of China. Um, we're less than a year away from the presidential election, and election security is, is a topic we talk about a lot here on Task Force 7 Radio. Are you anticipating an increased need for information and intelligence that is election related or election security related? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, no surprise in terms of the, the first element, which is that social media and technology companies are obviously going to be closely watched on their ability to, to both detect and defend against uh, influenced operations targeting the U.S. 2020 election. And uh, we're not talking about just Russia at this point. We're talking about potentially other uh, nation states, whether it be China, whether it be Iran, whether it be North Korea, uh, who will look to adopt the lessons learned from the 2016 election and Russia's successful cyber influence operations to uh, really muddy the waters as far as attribution uh, and uh, a multitude of, of different uh, potentially disruptive activities. And then there's the broader uh, landscape of misinformation, disinformation that I think the enterprise is watching very closely because of the potential ripples and ramifications that those types of strategies and TTPs can have when deployed outside of an election construct. And, and deep fakes is something that we've seen a lot of discussion about in the enterprise in terms of the different ways that deep fake technology can be used for malicious purposes uh, pointed outside, again, of the narrow scope of elections. And so I think that is an area where there's a, a robust appetite for understanding trends and, and strategies and uh, the implications that can have outside of 2020. Let's discuss a, a less technical threat, and that's password dumps. And I think a lot of people still have a lot of trouble managing passwords, even though there, there, are, there are several um, password uh, managers out there to uh, help people do that. And despite multi-factor authentication and physical tokens and biometrics and all this other stuff, we still can't move beyond passwords as the de facto authentication method. So how big of a challenge are the billions of passwords that are out there right now that have been dumped on the internet for the fraud teams at, at Flashpoint to manage and, and also the corporate teams to manage, uh, what, what are they doing to deal with it? Yeah, so this is a hard problem. Uh, yeah. And one that uh, we hear has so much impact against so many verticals across all these enterprises, like password validation attacks, credential validation attacks. Uh, and then more importantly, Sometimes they're used to find their way into their networks when there is weak security or no two-factor authentication turned on, or even business email compromise for that matter. So it has so much impact uh, to risk across an organization, and it all really starts with the consumer. Uh, consumers using their corporate uh, 
emails or whatever, even their own personal emails, and just weak passwords, not turning on two-factor authentication, or you know, some of these websites that have little or no security uh, getting popped or, or breached, and then the user database gets dumped and then added into some type of, uh, um, uh, it gets resold. So at Flashpoint, we've amassed 30 plus billion credentials ourselves that we are supporting our customers with and it keeps growing on a daily basis. Um, and what we're starting to find out is that the, the enterprises and our customers are starting to really try to build programs around what to do with these leaked passwords. It used to be that you know a password dump would come out uh, and then um, corporations would look at it if there were domains uh, that were part of their organization, they would just make sure that passwords didn't match and move on. But more and more, because uh, a bunch of these passwords just get redumped over and over and over again, I'm talking about like the old Adobe and LinkedIn and all these old dumps that were big but just get recycled, Pro, uh, teams are starting to finally put programs around it where they can say, oh, this is you know recycled from five years ago. This is old data. No need to reset or you know even use our systems to look at, into it. And that's where we're coming in. We're coming in and helping them with uh, that type of data analysis so they don't have to do it. At the same time, they're really interested, many enterprises are interested in what is the latest dump? Does it have impact about my business? Is it in our sector? Can, uh, you know, and how fast are these dumps going for sale? Because we will immediately see uh, these accounts get used against our customers. And that I think is where uh, a prediction for 2020 is this is what it's gonna be, we're gonna see more of. These password dumps go further and further to validate customer information and used to either log in to validate that a customer exists or used to gather as much information about a person and then leverage it for other attacks. Uh, and this is um, where uh, enterprises are also starting to put more emphasis around taking these dumps, whether it's my personal Gmail, Yahoo, Hotmail, whatever type of account there is out there, and then if a password matches a login for their infrastructure for you know their, the the online website, they may force reset accounts. And that's, I think, where we're gonna start seeing more from the consumer perspective, uh, some, a little bit of um, things that we're not typically used to, so accounts getting reset and us being asked to uh, reset our own passwords, that I hope has um, other impacts so that users start worrying more about their security, complex passwords, making sure that my my systems are safe, that I have antivirus protection turned on, uh, that I'm you know, not using the same password over and over again. Uh, and it, it goes back to your question, right? What are we gonna be doing with all these old traditional passwords and until there's some technology or there's some new way of handling online um, access, you know, essentially it's just gonna be more user education to the consumers, complex passwords, multi multiple use of uh, new passwords, rotating passwords, two-factor authentication turned on, use a password manager. Uh, because uh, it's not even up to the consumer anymore. If they're using a login for you know, a brand new website where they're trying to buy something from a retail site, clothes or you know, some type of product, and unfortunately that, that uh, enterprise gets breached, that's your, that's your login right there, right? It just gets resold and added to a database and then reused over and over again. And unless you're using different passwords, um, you, know, you may be victim uh, of fraud yourself and internally 
uh, enterprises are doing as much work as they can on account takeovers and, and, and looking into these accounts because it does have impact to their fraud losses. Uh, and then obviously the way that the customer perceives their security to be as well. So it's, it's, it's quite an interesting um, evolution of what we're seeing in password dumps. It's obviously happened forever, uh, but more and more that threat actors are getting more sophisticated about how fast they leverage the dumps and what they do with the dumps. Yeah, I mean, personally, I don't know how someone operates in this market without a password manager. I don't know how it's even possible. You must be using the same password for all your for all your logons, so, which is not a good idea. So I think password managers, I think, and enabling multi-factor authentication is the very least that you could do to start, as a consumer, securing yourself and, and, and strengthening your security. Gentlemen, I want to wrap up the show with a, with a talent question. And obviously, we're hearing a lot about the acute talent shortage the industry is, is navigating. And, and Chris, I know you have a front row seat to this uh, because you do a lot of work with Ninja Jobs. And that's the, the job platform for information security professionals. So specifically, I'd be really interested to see what trends you're seeing in the market. You think this is going to get any better? Is it going to get any worse? What's going to happen? Yeah, I think it is getting better. Um, and what I mean by that is we're starting to finally see uh, enterprises uh, hire more junior folks. So folks coming out of college or folks coming out of IT that are self-learning information security and taking a chance on them, which is what we've, we've always wanted. At the same time, uh, enterprising, investing in um, education for IT folks or even their own information security folks to learn other disciplines. Uh, and I, I still believe that for, for all the hype that's out there about a lack of information security experts or a lack of cybersecurity talent, they're just not looking in the right places or they're not investing in the right areas within their own people or even to hire folks. So I do believe that we've made a significant uh, step in the right direction to you know, bridge the gap of cybersecurity folks that are needed um, to fight all these cyber crimes that we're talking about. It's just a matter of being smart of how to find them, uh, being able to take a chance or a risk on someone that may not have a brand, but that's okay. You know, some, some of the folks that don't have a brand or are really quiet are probably some of the best cyber workers you're ever gonna find. Or leveraging your own networks, like you said, uh, LinkedIn, uh, you mentioned uh, Ninja Jobs, that's another great site to find candidates. Uh, or yeah, look within within your own hires. Does someone know someone within their own network that they can bring in, and you know that might be the right person or training from within. Uh, but I do believe that we are getting better, and as technology also evolves and as DevOps starts taking over, we're probably going to see a shift towards more folks being more on the IT DevOps side uh, for information security than in the past, which will require less and less analytical work than we have. So I, I believe we're going to see you know that market learn new uh, disciplines uh, to take advantage of the shifts in cybersecurity. Gentlemen, thanks for so, so much for coming on the show. Happy New Year to you both. I really appreciate it. I can't wait to have you back. Thanks for having us. We really enjoyed the conversation. Yes, thanks very much and Happy New Year to all. All right, folks, it's time to jump up out of here. We, uh, we got a couple things that we want to go over before we go. I, I want to talk about the website. It's going to be updated. Soon, I promise, the tf7radio.com website will be updated. And as always, I want to remind our listeners to visit the Cybersecurity Hub to read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at www.cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Stay frosty out there.
Thank you for tuning in this week to Task Force 7 Radio. To learn more about Task Force 7 Radio, please visit our website at taskforce7radio.com. Be sure to join your host, George Reedus, again next Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. 